From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, taxi, camper. Your parents' well-appointed rec room. With the simulated wood paneling, the electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. John Barber, my guest, and uh, what a delight, and what a remarkable autobiography. Your Mother's Not a Virgin, the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. And we just want to pick up on childhood friend Mel Nixon. And you came back after being deported for the second time from the United States. And, of course, you wanted desperately to get back into the U.S. And, uh, well... Tell us why you turned to Mel Nixon as a possible solution to your problem. Well, because he was my co-conspirator in the crimes. But I'm going to tell Richard this story, which you will hear, and I have never, ever, ever told this story. I put it in the book. And the reason I didn't tell the story is because I mentioned Mel Nixon's name, and I'm sure he's probably passed away by now. But I started to say earlier that before I get to that, I want to touch on the fact that I had uh, lost my belief in God when I was 12 years of age, and if I, I thought I was an agnostic or an atheist until I wanted to get back in the United States, and I needed some help. But in any event, when I was 12 years of age, uh, the only person I know who had a family together was a fellow named Don Lee. He lived on Scarborough Road, and they were near a Baptist church, and that's probably why. They lived there, and I went to them one day, and I didn't phone, and the reason I didn't phone is because they might say, don't come over. So I just showed up, and I asked Mrs. Lee if they would adopt me. And she said, John, don't be silly. You have a mother. And I said, no, you want to come over to my house and I'll show you. She's not there. I don't have a mother. She's in Buffalo with another uncle. And uh, and I meant it, but she giggled because she thought I was telling jokes, but I wasn't telling jokes. She said, no, we can't do that, but um, would you uh, have you been in church often? And I, th- I said, I think I was either, I don't know, uh, maybe I was christened in church. I don't remember, but I never go to church. She said, well, you, you can come to church with us if you like, and I love that. So she handed me a book. I said, what's this? It's the Bible. She says, this will help you. You go home and read the Bible. Well, I took the Bible home. Not only did I read it, I memorized it from Genesis to Revelations. And when we went to her church, this wonderful minister had a moment of private prayer. He would stop everything, and he says, it's time for private prayer. You take a minute now. You're in the house of worship. Talk to God with about whatever you want. And, of course, you know what I want. I want my father to be home. So instead of rushing out with the leaves, I'd rush home every day after praying. them, And I'd literally open the door the first two or three times, holler, Dad, Dad, hoping he's there and he was never there. And I did this for 13 weeks. And I thought, this just is not working. So the 13th week, he says, it's time for private prayer. And it was time for me to walk out. So I got up. Everybody saw me as I went out. And I went and sat on the stairs outside because this just wasn't for me. Well, he obviously saw me. So when church was out, while I was waiting for the lease, that's all I was waiting for, he came out, he came over to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Son, I heard the word son, and I felt a touch on my shoulder, and I almost cried, because nobody had ever called me son, 
and nobody had ever touched me. And I just looked up and I said, sir, this isn't working for me. He said, what isn't working for you? I said, this prayer business, you know. I don't pray in my bed anymore because I wet the bed. I don't want God to know that I'm praying in a urine-filled bread, and I'm in the house of the Lord. I come here to pray. I go home, and my father is not there. It's not working. I'm giving up on it. And he said to me, John, you must trust, you must believe in God's will. And I said, I don't think I'm in it. Well, everybody started to laugh. I mean, I don't know where it came from. So, you know, I saw it. That's that's what ended it. And not only that, that's when I totally deleted all of my family. I figured, you know, somehow or another, I'm cast adrift in this universe, and I'm blessed by nature with this brain that makes me a survivor of some sort, and that's what I was going to live with. Anyway, the law is in the United States would not allow anybody... You have to get permission from, you have to get permission from the Consul General. It was on Spadania Avenue at the time to ask permission to even ask immigration to come back. My a lawyer's name was a lawyer named Kaplan, who used to be a lawyer with the Immigration Service. I had the best lawyer in America. He said, John, you cannot make it. They're not going to change the law for you. And I said, well, I went when I was living up here again, when I was deported, I'm in this small little room, and I used to go to the YMCA to exercise, and they had this little, they had this little chapel, little tiny chapel, and there's a cross in the chapel, and I go there by myself. Now I never said it out loud, but I was praying in my head. Not for the laws to be changed, not for some congressman to find me and sponsor me like they did German Nazis, spies, <laughs> you know. I said, just give me the strength or the intellect to find a way to do this. And then it came to me as if by divine intervention. I would make those two crimes part of one crime. And so I, I wrote up a a, a paper describing how it ap- happened is that the first crime was set up to make way to break into the store in Kingston Road to set up a bigger crime. And then the only one who was with me was Mel Nixon. And I thought, well, how can I find this guy? And what I did as I looked in the, in, in the, uh, in the white pages and there was Nixon, 198 Lawler Avenue, I called and this girl answered and it was his sister. And we was, were like little spin the bottle lovers when we were kids. And I asked, where is Mel? Where is Mel? Is he around? And she said, he's not going anywhere. I said, what do you mean he's in, he's in prison in Sudbury? I said, what, I, what do you mean he's in prison in Sudbury? And she said, he was more of an idiot than you. At least you ran away from the country. This idiot, he joined the army. He became a Canadian war hero. When he came back to Toronto, they had parades honoring him. They put stuff on his lapel. It's in the newspapers. And I said, you know, I thought I heard something about that. But then why is he in prison? Did he go AWOL? She said, no, he took one of those machine guns they give him, and he went in a bank to hold it up, and they caught him, and he's serving like 20 or 30 years in Sudbury. And I thought, oh, my God. 
And I said, you know, I've got to talk to him. She said, well, I'm the only one who talks to him. His parents don't talk to him. His friends don't talk to him. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you and find out what you've been doing. I heard you got kicked out of the United States, too. So you guys are a pair. So she arranged for me to go to see Mel. I took an all-night train to Sudbury, and there was Mel in his uniform, and he looked still like Tyrone Power, this great, these movie star teeth and the jet black hair, and he was so happy to see me, and I was heartbroken because this guy's in prison, and here I am going to ask a favor, and my problem is nothing. So I let him talk about his life and what had happened, so he asked me what I want, and I said, This is the paper that I have written up that tells the truth about this crime that we committed when we were 16. He said, listen, I got a better idea. I'll take the whole blame for it. And I said, no, you won't, because you're doing 20 or 30 years. They know you're lying. I just want you to verify what I'm saying is the truth. And he said, are you sure? I'll be at, no, you can't do that. I want it. It has to be truthful. So he said, okay, give me an hour. So he wrote out almost, he sort of copied what I had written and he had, he had it notarized by the warden and they gave it to me. When I went to see the, my, my, uh, my lawyer called me from Los Angeles said, you're set to see the lady, uh, on a Thursday. And I went in to see her. And I'm a nervous, nervous, nervous wreck. I can never sit when I'm nervous. I'm pacing. In any event, what I had learned, Richard, at the law libraries, I memorized the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. I knew how many senators there were, how many congressmen, the capital of every state, every single war ever fought by the United I knew everything about American history. I could have been a professor at the University of Toronto. I was not prepared for the one simple question she asked me because when she looked at all the papers and she never smiled, she was she was a handsome lady in her early 50s in a beautiful blue dress suit. And she looked up at me and she said, Mr. Barber, first time anybody called me is Mr. Barber because I'm 29. Why do you want to go to the United States? And I wasn't prepared for the answer. And then all of a sudden, I opened my mouth and I poured all this stuff about the United States is the only country in the world made up of every other country in the world. The United States is the only country that's planned on a set of laws, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You have Thomas Jefferson, the most intellectual president of the United States, writing the Declaration of Independence, and then they have the Bill of Rights. But guess who the intellectual founder of this country is? The son of an English bootmaker, a poor kid named Thomas Paine, who writes common sense and sells 50,000 copies and gives them to George, all the money to George Washington to feed his soldiers. And I go on and on. I sound like Jimmy Stewart in a Frank Capra movie. And when I'm finished, she just looks at me. Nothing's coming from her. And then she says, John, I wouldn't want to be the one to stand in the way of your American dream. Mm. Ah. I'm almost crying now thinking about it because it's the first time I ever really cried. I mean, 
tears poured down my face. And then I went outside, and I couldn't get on the bus or the streetcar because I was so excited. I was jumping up and down, and I was screaming and running up the street like a madman. I got into the house, and I jumped on my bunk bed like it was a trampoline, and I'm screaming, I'm screaming. And then I finally called Mr. Kaplan. And then the first thing he says, you're kidding me, is what he says. He says, now get your passport. I said, no, they just gave me permission to ask to get the passport. He said, John, get your passport. You are coming to the United States of America. And i got to tell you something. The only way you got it is I can see your future. You're going to end up with a talk show, because only a talker could have mm. talked his way into the United States. Wow. And I got my green card. Indeed you did. And we got real people (laughs) and a lot more. And that came about by accident. In 1977, I was handed my citizenship papers by United States Senator John Dunney. Ah, all right. Um, We we will, I promise, people listening want to hear about Jim Garrison and JFK, and we we will get to that, I promise. And we'll bring John back. Uh, But I I want to talk just very briefly, and and maybe, I don't know, I I hate doing these word association things, but I just, you have have known and befriended and rubbed shoulders with and worked side by side with so many greats. I just want to mention some names, and, uh, you know, you you did a lot of uh, work in in stand-up comedy, and and, um, you know, you knew the greats, from Dick Gregory and Mort Saul, and of course the great Lenny Bruce, who I know was, was a personal favorite. Just tell me some thought, your thoughts about, about Lenny Bruce. There is, you know, one, I'm glad you asked that question, because, uh, I've had a couple of people ask me, you know, it's your book, but what is the best thing about your book? What do you like best about your book? And Richard, the, uh, two things I love the most about my own book is that, uh, my f- f- favorite American writer next to Mark Twain was uh, Ben Heck. Ben Heck wrote a child of the century. Ben Heck was born in Racine, Wisconsin, and he didn't know he was Jewish until the Second World War started. He ran away at 16 like me, and he wanted to get into the circus, but ended up working at the newspaper. He became Chicago's top columnist. He became New York's top columnist. He and, and Charles MacArthur wrote front page. And Ben Hecht became the highest-paid screenwriter in history. He invented Scarface with Paul Muni. And he wrote Gone with the Wind in 12 days and never read the book. He only read a 30-page synopsis. And the, and the last part of his book is called the, Com- the Committee. He became the first propagandist for the non-existent state of Israel. And the book alone is worth the, his participation in the birth of Israel and the birth of uh, Zionism. I mean, it's phenomenal. But no chapters. It's all a series of columns. Like he was still doing. New- well, that's what I did. And if if you want to, let's say you're going to bed at eleven o'clock at night and you want a great read and you want to smile and you want to learn something. Okay, I was the first person. I was the original host of the Gong Show. Oh, Chuck Barris. Oh, God, I'd like to know that story. You open up and there are five or six pages. That's all you have to do. Find it in the front because all of the titles of the chapters are the, of the columns are there. And then Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce was, along with Bill Hicks, the only comic I ever knew who had sex appeal. Comics don't have sex appeal. You know, some women are attracted to them because they're attracted to power. But they were attracted to Lenny and Bill Hicks because they truly had sex appeal. And 
and I was a, a, a huge admirer of Lenny's. I knew his mother very well, but I didn't know Lenny well at all. And uh, Lenny was uh, arrested for what they called obscenity. And the tragedy about the trial in Chicago, and he talked about it a lot on stage, is that the cop who went to see his act memorized his act so he could perform it for the jury, and they wouldn't let Lenny perform it. So the cop was so bad doing Lenny's act, they found Lenny guilty, and they deprived him of a cabaret license so he could not earn any money. But the reason they attacked Lenny is because he attacked organized religion, he attacked organized politics, he was attacking the government. I mean, he was he was absolutely and totally, totally brilliant. So there was a club in San Francisco that let him work. It was called the, 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 uh, the, the blues. It was a blues club. And he was almost like when he would talk, it was like listening to verbal blues. But most of it was about his act. And my wife knew him. And Red Fox became my mentor when I started doing stand-up. And Dick Gregory did the liner notes to my first album, which it's called It's Tough to Be White. So my wife took me to see Lenny. Now, I loved his early albums, but his early albums were all clean, and they were hilarious. How to Make a Black Feel Comfortable at a Party, and uh, uh, The Lone Ranger. His Lone Ranger is just a classic work of comic psychology. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. But he wasn't doing that anymore. He was just doing his the court stuff. So he told Sarita, he said, Oh, I'm so glad you got brought John because I called... My mom and said, you know, would you put me in touch with John Barber? I'd like to talk to him. So, uh, do you mind if I talk to your husband? So he said, no, honey, I'll meet you at home. So she lived in San Francisco. She went home. So Lenny and I went for a walk at midnight in San Francisco around North Beach, the Italian district. And he unloaded the story of his life about how he, had, if he had it to do over again, he would do it all over again. He didn't own a car. He didn't own a house. He was desperately in debt. And at one time he had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. But all this went, all of this stuff went to, to lawyers. And uh, he asked me about my album. He said, it's really funny, that tough to be white stuff. And he said, you know, I used to work in a burlesque club, too, because I worked my material out clean in a topless club because there was no place else to work. So that's what I did while I was preparing material for television. And uh, I said to him, uh, and then he said to me, John, you know, I'm working on some new stuff. Would you come to my house? And I said, sure, I'd be love to, but I'm going to bring Sridi. He said, that's fine. So a couple of later, late days later, we went to Lenny's house, and it was an absolute total mess. And there was stucco peeling off of the wall. It was He was walking around barefoot, and there were audio tapes all over the place. And he put one in to play it, and he said, John, I want to do this. And it was more court stuff. And I stopped, and I said, Lenny, excuse me, if I want court stuff, I'll go to see the Merchant of Venice, okay? <laughs> There's no better court stuff than that. And he laughed. And Sarita said, don't talk to him like that. And and Lenny said, that's why I want to talk to your husband, because he know, he's a critic. I'll know he'll going to tell me the truth about what it is that I'm doing. So I said to him, 
I said, you are truly, truly funny. And then I ran off all these classic routines of his. He was opening at a a place in Huntington Beach, was like a warehouse, and it had sawdust on the floor, but they were going to book him for about 45 minutes. One of the few, it was a, it was a, it was a contemporary, you know, folk club is what it was. So he was reduced to that. I said, just do your clean stuff, please. And then he said, if I do the clean stuff, nobody's heard it. I said, that's why they laugh, because it's fresh, for God's sake. So he said, will you and Sarita come to see me? And we said, yes, we'll come to see you. So we went down down there. I think it was called the Golden Bear is what it was called. Yeah. And then it was all sawdust. It was like a a hangar, and the the stage was all wood in the corner. And the guy just introduced them, saying, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce, and the place was wall-to-wall. It was just packed and was just his solitary name on the marquee. There was a huge ovation. He was scheduled to do 45 minutes. He did nothing but his clean material. He was on for almost an hour and a half. They did not want him to leave. So when it was over, Sarita and I tried to get into his dressing room. Of course, when you're a star now, you can't get in anybody's dressing room. He saw us, and he waved, and he thanked me very, very much, and he said, I'll see you. I'll see you again soon. And a couple of days later, his picture was on the front page of the L.A. Times, there he was naked on the bathroom floor with a uh, hypodermic needle stuck in his arm that the police department had stuck there to, as a warning to anybody else who wanted to question uh, the powers that be in the United States of America. He was radioactive, to say the least. All right, we'll come Great back. phrase. We will talk uh, about more of John Barber's career, but we'll also get to the Garrison tapes when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. A high school dropout at 15, deported twice from the United States. He is recognized as the godfather of reality television for his role as the creator, producer, co-host, and writer of the trend-setting hit Real People. He also won five five Emmys uh, along the way, uh, and he also... Uh, rub shoulders with the great late district attorney from New Orleans, Jim Garrison, of course, who uh, prosecuted Clay Shaw for conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. How did that happen? How did you hook up with? Uh, I mean, I know you know you have vivid memories of the JFK assassination, uh, and that stuck with you. I have obviously. vivid memories of almost everything, but again, that was a happy accident. Uh, in uh, I, I talked to him on the phone when I tried to book him on my show in 1970. Um, I had just come off of doing a talk variety show for Channel 11 because when Merv Griffin left Westinghouse, he he recommended me as a replacement. I filled in for him one night, and my numbers were so good. Westinghouse used my ratings to go to negotiate David Frost's money down because they wanted David Frost, so they hired David. And Chuck Young, who was a general manager at Metro Media, said, that guy's going to fail. Come out here and do a show for us. Well, I did that show for a while. And then it was over with because that show business. In 1970, 
when John Kennedy was killed, a company could only own five television or five radio stations or five newspapers. Now, the worst president in American history, Bill Clinton, changed all that, where now five or six corporations own 95% of all of America's media. And I'm hoping that Donald Trump will, like Kennedy, sign an executive order and have that reversed. But we haven't seen yet that yet. But in any event, in Los Angeles... At the time in the country, there were 1,500 different owners of television stations, so they could be challenged by local groups. And in Los Angeles, they were being challenged by the Chicanos. They were marching by the thousands almost every day because they wanted representation on Channel Seven, which was the ABC station. They wanted more representation in city hall and city government. Most of all. They wanted supervision over the L.A. Police Department because they felt they were being unfair. So you could be successful and challenge a license. So KABC decided to get rid of their morning show, and they were going to do a news information show, a live 90-minute news information show. The one that everybody thought would get the show was a fellow named Mario Machado, one of the most handsome men you've ever seen in your life with a great voice. The best-known announcer in Los Angeles. He announced everything. And everybody thought because he was Chicano and Chinese, he was everybody's ethnic, that he would get a, get the job. He saw me working at a place called the Ice House, working up material with Steve Martin. And afterwards, he calls me aside and he said, Hey, John, you should audition for this show that I'm auditioning for. And I said, that AM show they're talking about? And I said, yeah. He said, yeah. I said, well, you know you're going to get it, Mario. I mean, it's made for you. Look at you. You're the best-looking guy in town, the most popular Hispanic in town. He says, but, John, I can't add lib. I can only read. You do all this political stuff so you know about the news. Here's the guy's name. It's Brad Lockman. Give him a call and see if he'll audition you. So I called Brad, and I went in there, and there were about 25 other people that are going to be auditioned. And I won it. And when I got the show, I became the first person in television to review movies in television. In television, I was the first person in L.A. to open up phones because we were live so people could talk to the guests. All of this was fought by the general manager, a guy named John McMahon. He thought uh, uh, people who live in Los Angeles were dumb. They weren't smart like they were in San Francisco. But I did it anyway, in spite of that, because we, we were live and he couldn't stop it. I put Muhammad Ali on the air when only Howard Cosell would put him on the air. Because he said, I'm not, not going to kill yellow people. I only have problems with white people. We put Jane Fonda on when they called her Hanoi Jade. So we had this great show. But there was a thing called the Fairness Doctrine. So I couldn't, it, it, you could never have a Rush Limbaugh or uh, 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 O'Reilly or any of these people who do our shows that are either, most of them are all right-wing conservatives or liberal. Because you'd have to, you just couldn't do it. So I had to be sort of devil's advocate. Advocate. Anyway, I'm doing the show, and to me, the Garrison thing and the Kennedy thing didn't mean much. I only had one comment about Jim Garrison, is that he arrested Clay Shaw in 1967, and I saw the newscast which is in the film, by the way, the newscast where he says, we have solved the crime, the Central Intelligence Agency did it, and there will be convictions when we go to court. And I thought, wow, this is thrilling. 
But for two years, he never got to court because the U.S. government stood in his way and the media through Project Mockingbird was standing in his way. I didn't know that at the time. But I said to some friends that I lost, hey, if this guy's got nothing, why don't they get out of his way and let him fall on his face? So anyway, January 29, 1969, he takes Clay Shaw to court. Serendipity, the day my son was born. Again, a happy accident because I never wanted a child because I didn't think I'd be a decent father. But if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I want to come back as my son because he had the best <laughs> father and mother that anybody ever had. So he, it's announced that he loses the case. As Richard said, it was a conspiracy case. I'm in a bookstore. It's called Edmund's Bookstore, and it's on Hollywood Boulevard across from Musso and Frank. And I see this book called Heritage of Stone, and there's the author is Jim Garrison. Could that be the same guy? So out of curiosity, I just pick it up, I look at it, and I'm stunned at what I'm learning right away, that he had to sue Time Life, the owners of the Zapruder film, in order to get the film, and they said no, and it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court finally ruled in Garrison's favor. And then there was this... Doc, uh, this uh, forensic pathologist, the only one at Bethesda who was in the autopsy room. He is called by Diamond, who is Shaw's defense attorney, as a defense witness to talk about the bullet in the back of the head. And he plagiarized himself by saying that. But nobody knew at the time he plagiarized himself. But under cross-examination, and it's not by Jim because he never cross-examined anyone. He had a great staff and he trained them well under cross-examination. He has to admit there was no autopsy. First of all, it was prevented by admirals and generals. One of the generals might have been a guy named Curtis LeMay, who was well known for hating, hating Kennedy because he wouldn't nuke Vietnam. I mean, it was, he's like Dr. Strangelove and the FBI agents. But then he goes on to say they wouldn't let us even look at film. They wouldn't let us look at x-rays. So there was no autopsy. Now the court is hearing this, and then Garrison's, uh, uh, Garrison's attorney brings out the Warren report and shows it to the jury. Do you see any x-rays here? Do you see any pictures here? You know what you see, folks? You see two cartoon drawings of a head drawn in pen and ink with a bullet going through the back of the head and out the front and supposedly through Connolly. Now it's a magic bullet, 399. Magic bullet that has almost nothing missing from it. There is more lead in Connolly's wrist and leg than, than there are. And, and so it's impossible that that be true. Anyway. What Garrison was after was not the conspiracy case. And the reason he arrested Shaw, was after Ferry, but Ferry committed suicide, left two suicide notes. And Garrison said, I don't want to find two more suicide notes. So he knew that Shaw was Clay Shaw's handler, which he, which he was. And then there was a handler above that who was David Attlee, David Attlee Phillips. So that's why, that's why he arrested him. He's trying to get him for perjury. And the jury, in eight minutes, found him guilty of perjury. Found him guilty of perjury. And here's something else that you didn't know about Garrison, who was so thorough. He not only go, did he go through a grand jury, he had a jury, he had a three-judge panel set up to read the, because Diamond wanted to introduce the 26 volumes of the Warren Report as evidence 
that, that, that Kennedy was killed by one person, Lee Harvey Oswald. Three judges ruled it inadmissible, and you know what they called it? They called it hearsay because a Warren report was never an investigation. Nobody ever heard of that. They never heard that Jim Garrison won the perjury case. And then the government steps in and refuses to let Jim Garrison bring Clayshaw to trial for which he would have gotten 99 years. And if you're about to take a break, I have something I want to add to all of this. We will. And uh, let me just remind uh, people about the uh, the book signing. John Barber will be attending, a, as I say, a book signing at Conspiracy Culture. That's happening uh, one week from tonight, Sunday, October the 6th. And that's taking place, again, Conspiracy Culture, 1605 Queen Street West, booth number five. That's Conspiracy Culture, Sunday, October the 6th. And that, again, is 1065 Queen Street West. And uh, what time again is that, John? It's 11.30 to 1.30. All right. And you'll be taking lots of questions about JFK and uh, Whatever Garrison they want you and... to talk about. I just love to talk to people. And I don't just sign my name to the book. I'll find out something personal about them and write them something personalized. All right. Uh, let's take another time out, come back, and finish up with uh, John Barber and Jim Garrison right here on The Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We are back with John Barber talking about Jim Garrison. You interviewed Garrison in 1970 on your L.A. show? No. No. uh, 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 Oh, uh, let me get to the business of the book. I tried to. What happened is I was so excited by what I was reading that I called him to book him on the show. And I thought a secretary would answer. And this bass baritone voice said, hello. And I said, can I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? And the voice said, speaking. And I got all excited. Oh, my God, Mr. Garrison, I just finished reading your book, Heritage of Stone. And he laughed and interrupted me. He said, oh, you must be the other one. I only sold two copies. <laughs> well, you got to love somebody like that. So I finally talked to me. He said, you're not going to get away with it, John. They're not going to put me on television. I said, listen, we are live. I had all Ali on and Jane Fonda, all these controversial people. He said, John, they're not going to put Jim Garrison on the air to talk about the CIA murdering the president. I said, we're going to talk about your book and the case and the stuff that came up in the trial. These are facts, okay? And then I'm going to open the phones for an hour and we'll be jammed. I finally talked him into it. So while we're talking privately... He says, you know, John, it's 1970, six years after the Warren report, and you know that a recent Harris poll said that 83% of all Americans don't believe to this day the Warren report or that Lee Oswald did it or did it alone. And I said, well, if so many people know that, why aren't they marching in the streets? He said, you didn't see the second question. And I said, what was the second question on this Harris poll? The second question was, would you like to see a deeper investigation, a second investigation, this time investigating the FBI and the CIA? And only 21% said yes, John. So what does that say about Americans? I don't know where it came from, Richard, but I said, Mr. Garrison, I know what it says to me. 
I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car, or on the pool table, or in the on the on the bar stool, or in bed to conceive me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he howled, and he said, God, you sound like my second, my favorite writer. My very favorite is Shakespeare, but my second is Mark Twain. And Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they have been fooled. And, John, we've been fooled since November twenty second, 1963, but I'm thrilled to do your show. I was fired the next day, and he was canceled. Now, I must tell you, I didn't think it had anything to do with my conversation about the assassination. I'm in show business, Richard. You know, I was the opening act for Bob Goulet, and I was the opening act for Bobby Darren. Uh, you know, and you only work two weeks or a week, or you get 13 weeks if you get a show. Nothing is permanent in show business. So I thought nothing of it. And because I was the first to do movie reviews in television, I ended up being signed by uh, L.A. Magazine for 10 years to do their reviews and started doing them on Channel 11. So I had another job and never thought about it. But I'm going to tell you something that is very, very important. There's a fellow, uh, you, you've heard Donald, President Trump talk about the fact that Congress uh, uh, ruled that the CIA files and the murder of John Kennedy were to be released in October. Right. Well, there's no way they're ever, ever, ever going to be released because the CIA so far has talked President Trump out of that. So they're not being released. But a fellow named Jefferson Morley, who knows as much about the assassination as almost anybody, Mark Lane or May May Brussel was by far the best researcher in the world. He brought suit against the Central Intelligence Agency seven years ago to release not the CIA files, but their files of Jim Garrison's. Because you and I know that intelligence agencies talk in code. You can't Garrison's files because Garrison named names. He had the amounts of money, the shooters, where the money went to. I mean, he had everything. And And about six or eight months ago, they ruled, the judge, the courts in uh, D.C. ruled against Jefferson. Morley said, you're not getting Garrison's files. And guess who the judge was? Kavanaugh, appointed by Trump to the Supreme Court. And you asked this great question of me during the break. What's going on here? And that is that is the question. What is indeed going on here? Now, there's a possibility if Donald Trump gets a second term, it doesn't augur so well for him now since Netanyahu lost because Netanyahu was running around Israel with him in a picture with Donald Trump <laughs> and they voted against him. But I think Trump has a very strong chance of winning in 2020. And if he does, he may reverse the Communications Act and he may literally force them to open all the files, but you're going to find nothing. There are 67 Clay Shaw files, and I have them. How? How did you get them? I got them through a very, very, very close friend. Now, when Jim Garrison lost his job as a DA, he won the second ter- the second time he was running. It was a slam dunk win. He could still investigate the CIA. He was free to do that. So they did everything to destroy him, and they did destroy him. They tried to entrap him, and then his marriage was destroyed, 
and uh, that uh, that piano player's uh, there's a piano player from New Orleans, who's Harry Connick, his yeah. father. Yeah. His father beat Garrison and ordered all of Garrison's files destroyed. But a Patriot cop copied the files. And that's how the files are retained today. And there's 67 of them. So when I heard that Kavanaugh said no, and that Trump was not hammering the CIA, I said, you know what? I owe it to the memory of Mr. Garrison. And I owe it more to America that gave me a home and gave me a family and gave me a job to know the truth about Mr. Garrison's case. I'm going to start to release the file. So if you go to my website, which is www.johnbarbersworld.com, not only can you see free the first documentary, the Garrison tapes, there are five files that have been released. And they're all about six to eight minutes. You could watch those five files, Richard, and never read a Mark Lane book or see an Oliver Stone movie or a John Barber documentary and know that Jim Garrison solved the case. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the first one that went out. You'll do that when we come back. The Clay Shaw file. We'll get into the Clay Shaw file and the Garrison tapes. On the other side, John Barber stays with us. Now, how can you leave? You can't. It's that simple. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, a few moments remain with John Barber, the godfather of reality television, the creator, host, producer, writer. Of, you mean it's five to two already? It's it's ten to one. Ten to one. Ten oh, to one. Oh my God. You're still on I, Vegas I, I time. That's all right. Okay, we got ten. I can <laughs> okay, tell you. We're two talking qu- about the Garrison tapes, and you were going to tell these files. You have them in your possession. I had, yes, and I felt that uh, it was my obligation to the country that brought me in and gave me a life and a great family, gave me everything to know the truth because that's what America was built on. So I began releasing a few months ago the Garrison files. So if you go to my site, you can see them for nothing. And, and what I do, if the, let's say there are 50 pages in one guy, which is Clay Shaw, there was like 130 pages on Shaw. I'll pick eight or, eight or nine things up that are important, but I will put up there all of the documents so those of you who are patient and want to read all of them can. Here's something about Clay Shaw and why he would have been serving 99 years in prison. First of all, we found proof, of course, he was with the Central Intelligence Agency, but at the time, Garrison couldn't prove it in a courtroom. But in the perjury case, guess what he had? A guy named James Whalen, a murderer, is offered $25,000 by Clay Shaw and David Ferry to murder Jim Garrison. 10000 down and $15,000 afterwards. And what happens is that Whalen thinks about it, but can't do it. It's the DA, and he's fighting the government. It's just too big for me, so he goes to Garrison. And he said, give me anything you want, and I will sign it. And what it was, he said, Mr. Garrison, I thought of shooting you, but not for the money. My daughter is deathly ill. And Clay Shaw promised we would have the best doctors in the entire country cure my daughter. That's all they needed. The other thing is a, a, a teacher, uh, a professor from the university in Chicago, said that his best friend lived with Clay Shaw 
for one year and then had a transsexual operation to become a woman, and Shaw kicked her out when she became a woman. And he, there are 22-year-old male hookers talking about the deviant homosexual acts they performed with Shaw, with Ferry, and with Oswald. Now, does a guy like Clay Shaw, who's a revered businessman, want the jury to hear about his real life? No. And Jim Garrison had this slam dunk case. And what happened? The governments knew this and stepped in and stopped it. And then Shaw conveniently died. Now, when we release the Oswald files, what you are going to see in that also are pictures of the fronts of some newspapers that describe two shooters. And those disappear. But this is the most interesting thing to me. Lee Harvey Oswald is in Chief Curry's office. And there are a dozen and a half Stetsons and guns in that office. And there's no stenographers to take notes. And Curry said we couldn't afford a stenographer and there was no room for a tape recorder. Now, you all know that's a bunch of hooey. But So he's in there for like eight hours. So if he's there for eight hours, what are they talking about? Can he be confessing for eight hours? And Garrison found a guy who was in there at the interview. And Garrison said, what did they ask? And the guy laughed and he said, what they did not ask was, did you shoot Don Kennedy or did you shoot Tippett? And of course, he couldn't have shot Tippett. He had a revolver and it was an automatic that killed Tippett. And, 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 and Garrison said, what do you mean they didn't ask? He said they were prevented. Those who wanted to ask, some of the real detectives, were stopped by uniforms and suits. Because if, if Oswald obviously heard some guy say, did you shoot the president? You know that he's going to say, I'm a patsy. I work for the CIA and the FBI and I can prove it. They didn't want him to say that. So everything was about nonsense. Eight hours of nonsense. All these documents, and there, and there are five of them. And in November, uh, I'm going to put out the sixth one because everybody who is, knows anything about this uh, and uh, uh, Devil's Chessboard and stuff like that is that the architect of the assassination was quite obviously Alan Dulles, who was fired by John Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs, and then, of course, appointed to head up the Warren Commission to prevent an investigation into the CIA. And that's why it was held in secret for nine months. And Mark Lane said if this had been a rape case or a pedophilia case, you'd have had the New York Times and the Washington Post say, hey, open this up. This is a murder of the President of the United States, and they make it secret. Alan Dulles was a hireling. He was the head of the CIA because he was appointed. And you have to be appointed by from above. And what I'm going to do on November 22nd is Jim Garrison said this to me privately. I didn't put it in the documentary because he couldn't document it. But it was the research that he did. He said that Alan Dulles got the go-ahead from one of the ruling families of the United States who had a high position in politics in this country. And then he named the guy. 
and I've done considerable research on it, and there's absolutely no question that Jim Garrison is probably right. So the sixth file uh, that I'll release will be about that. It will be called the Garrison file, even though I do not have the file. It's just my conversation with Jim. And uh, that's going to be released released on the website John Barber's World. Dot com. Yes, that'll it'll be, be on YouTube. November the 22nd. November 22nd. Essentially, you'll be naming the, the person who greenlit the assassination. Yeah, because, you know, and uh, it's just, you know what? You have seen, 50, you probably saw people signing petitions about eight months ago, Oliver Stone and, and uh, Martin Luther King's children and some of the Kennedys, a petition they presented to Congress. I mean... It's toilet paper to Congress. They didn't even read the Patriot Act when when the Oklahoma office building was blown up, and they just passed it. And more and more and more, what Snowden left the country for and what Julian Assange has been warning us about has been coming true. We're living in an Orwellian United States of America. And let's just hope it doesn't happen to Canada. I heard somebody the other day, they were, they were sort of arguing over the fact that some of your media was talking about, uh, uh Trudeau and the fact that he put on blackface at one time or another. You got a, you got a prime minister that put on blackface. We got a guy running around with an orange face. But in, in a, in any event, somebody said, you know, that's a terrible thing that's going on now. It's the Americanization of our Canadian media. Well, <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, listen, uh, you uh, have done an outstanding job with this uh, book, and I, I can't thank you so much for coming in. I can't thank you enough, and we have to do it again. Uh, I know you're going to be in town for a while. Let's uh, let's see if we can cobble something together, John. What a, what a pleasure meeting a true television pioneer. Oh, well, thank you so much. I deeply, deeply appreciate that. I love to listen to stories. I love to tell stories, and the audience didn't know. But during the break, you were telling me some of your stories, which I hope you broadcast, because they're wonderful. And I look forward to meeting anybody who comes to the bookshop 11.30 to 1.30 on Sunday. Thank you all. Thank you. My uh, my thanks to Owen Wolf, and I'll be back next week with a brand-new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed. And nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.